Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. Our goal is to not only showcase the richness and diversity of our culture, but also to foster a deeper understanding and appreciation of the ways in which these cultivators shape our world. Join us on this exciting journey as we explore the cultural landscape and cultivate a greater appreciation for the beauty and complexity of the Phil M experience. Follow us on all social media at Belay Creative or Cultivate Labs, both with a K. H.B. Mendoza is an acclaimed director and writer whose works include Coma the Musical, Fruit Fly, I Am a Ghost, Bitter Melon, and Attack DK Release. The San Franciscan-based filmmaker was inducted into the Essential SF by the San Francisco Film Society in 2012, and Bitter Melon was dubbed one of the 20 best Bay Area films of the decade by the Mercury News. His latest directorial film, The Secret Art of Human Flight, premiered last month at the Tribeca Film Festival to rave reviews, and he recently won Best Director at the Uray International Film Festival. In our conversation, HP talks about overcoming imposter syndrome and how he became comfortable with calling himself an artist. Now I'm at a point where... I am kind of getting over my imposter syndrome because that just comes with age, I think. It's like now at this point, it's like I look at my canon. I haven't been doing anything else for 20 years. So, I mean, what else can I call myself? I actually am a filmmaker. And he asked me about my music career. He said, well, you started off with musicals. Like, were you classically trained, blah, blah, blah. I said, here's the thing. Even when I got into music, I don't think I was comfortable calling myself a musician. What I was doing is I was doing an impersonation. My very first album after I broke off from the band was I kind of made parody versions of a lot of different pop songs. Like, this is the girl band song. This is the boy band song. This is like the emo song. And so it was all ironic. So that way, if anyone hated it, I'd say, yeah, I know, doesn't that suck? And so I can just shit on myself like I do. Like, I'm really good at shitting on myself. But I told this guy, I said, but you know, people started liking my music and I started making musicals. I said, well, I'll just keep on pretending. I'll keep on pretending that I'm a musician and people might actually believe it's good. After almost 20 years, it's like, well, I'm still doing it. And people are now asking me what, to compose songs. Like Folk, I don't know if you know about that album Folk. Like I was tasked to write 18 songs from 18 different people. And I was like, wow, people actually want my music. And I told him, I said, you know, it's kind of like how when in order to be asleep, you first have to pretend to be asleep. You know, you pretend long enough and you eventually will be that thing. And I think like for a while I was like, Am I pretending anymore? Like, I actually am an artist. Like, I get to say this. I get to say this out. So I think maybe that's one way of getting over imposter syndrome. I don't claim to have the answer, but what worked for me is just doing it until you feel like you're not an imposter anymore. Also in this conversation, HB talks about the importance of having a family member who believes in your craft, taking a film and producing an entire experience around it and what equitable representation looks like for Asian Americans in entertainment. 
you can find HP on Instagram at HP Mendoza and visit his website at hpmendoza.com. First of all, thank you for coming to the studio. Yeah, of course. It's nice to be here and like kind of make myself be seen and let me know. I come here all, all the time, but I hide, you know? That was so funny when you told me that. I was like, when did you come? All I the mean, time. yeah, we have open studios at least once a quarter. So next time you have to say hi. You know what it is? It's because I'm always coming for like a single artist, you know? And there was one time when I came to see, I won't say who, but I saw a single artist who was just like, oh, yeah, well, thanks for coming. And she kind of announced me. And I felt really embarrassed. And so everyone came up, oh, you're the Colma guy. I was like, oh, yeah, that was like 20 years ago. So, like, literally, if you ever see a guy with a hood, or if you see two people in hoods, that's me and Mark walking in here, like, on the down low. Now that you said that, I'm like, I remember two guys in hoods. Yeah, two guys in hoods with the exact same glasses. That's me and Mark. Yeah. Okay. I I won't announce it, but I'll just, like, (laughs) secretly say hi. I'll give a secret handshake. (laughs) This is a question we've been asking all of our guests. Which ancestors would you like to call into the space or our conversation today? Um... This will be loaded for anyone who knows me or anyone who's seen Bitter Melon, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. My father died during the pandemic of COVID. So there you have it. Yeah. Let's invoke him. We honor him and thank him. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, because it's so fresh on my mind, you know, I'm an emerging filmmaker myself, and I watched this interview you did and you talked about you being as young as six years old, kindergarten age, and recreating The Wizard of Oz with your father's, was it Super 8? Super 8, yeah. 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 What was it at that age that drew you to filmmaking so young? Well, first of all, The Wizard of Oz is kind of designed to like grab like the hearts and minds of all kids, you know? So being part of that. Right. Like it's like, oh, okay, I'm one of those kids that watches The Wizard of Oz. And that's like code for gay, right? <laughs> okay. So he's into Judy Garland and musicals. But also because of that, like if I could like, you know, take that joke and get serious for a second, being a little gay kid, it's like, okay, well, I'm not exactly like the most macho kid. I'm not gonna be into the, all the stuff that all the other boys are into. So mix that with my introversion. I spent a lot of time just kind of creating stories. Now, when you're six years old, you're not like, you know, Bukowski. You're not like, you're originating like like new concepts. You just want to recreate what you love. So I was literally just like recreating The Wizard of Oz with like my stuffed rabbit, my bear. Optimus Prime was a tin man. Like I would take my Transformers and turn them into characters in The Wizard of Oz. And my dad came home with a Super 8 camera once as a gift for being gone for so long. You know, like he would just disappear for swaths of time and the way he would make it all right by coming back with a bunch of like this one was a camera meanwhile i didn't know why like i'd be playing with my camera and my mom and dad would be screaming down the hall because he'd been gone for like a month gambling but i would take that camera and i didn't start with the wizard of oz actually i started uh by taking you know hot wheels like racetracks like taking the camera and recording while going along the racetrack so that way when we developed that three minute and 18 second cartridge of film we'd project it and I would move the seat, I'd move the couch with my family sitting on it. And I said, this is like Back to the Future in Universal Studios. And I just wanted to make rides. That's amazing. And I think from there, I was like, okay, well, what if I did things with actual people in them? I didn't have people. I didn't want to shoot my family members. That's how I shot my stuffed animals. And I would make like three-minute versions of The Wizard of Oz. That's amazing. I love 
crazy. I love everything, but <laughs> just having that like imagination at that age. Yeah. I mean, I, we all have that though, right? I just wonder how much of it gets stifled by other things. You know, I was just talking to a friend about how now that the WGA strike is happening and people are kind of seeing me standing along with fellow writers and talking about how much money I lost because of the strike, I feel like all of a sudden my family's like, oh, wow, so that is a real job. You know, I'd be like, for the longest time, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, he's doing that thing. One day he'll go to medicine. And it's so funny because I think that when my family or other people from my immediate circle will kind of point out other people that I've grown up with who are doing successfully, you know, I'm like, okay, like I can read between the lines. I'm like, okay, so so and so is a doctor now, and you're saying that he's successful. What do you think of me? And I think for a lot of people, they're just like, well, you know, we're, we know that you're doing your little film thing. And then I talk to some of the people in my family and I find out like a lot of them were super creative. A lot of them were like excellent singers. A lot of them were excellent like artists and painters. And they're like, yeah, but that, you know, mom said that didn't make any money. So I got into politics or I got into law or I got into medicine. And I'm the schmuck who didn't. You know, I'm the one who's doing all of this. Meanwhile, I'm living check to check. I think that's an important thing that you bring up because here at Bly Creative, with our creative growth program, we try to change that narrative in our culture. And it's so ingrained from such, like, goes back generations and generations. Because you're right, there's so many Filipinos that are super talented Uh and creative and imaginative. I think all of my family members either could draw or dance or sing or some kind of creative outlet, but they stifled it because they had to have a real job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my father included, I'll be honest. I mean, it's interesting to think about how often I saw him playing with like random bands or random just people. And he was an excellent guitar player. My uncle was a vocalist and they would do their thing. And my father was also a painter, you know? He was an artist. But I think for the most part, it was always just seen as a hobby and almost laughable, right? It's like, oh, he, there he goes, he's doing his musician thing, you know? Which kind of seeped into me. I had shame over being an artist for so long. I had so much shame over being an artist that I refused to call myself an artist because I used to believe, and I think a lot of people believe, that the word artist is loaded because they believe there's this continuum on which you exist where on one side you have artist and on the other side you have like loser, right? As if it's qualitative. It's like it's not qualitative. I can call myself an artist. It doesn't mean I'm a good one. There's a lot of bad art there, you know? Like, I could be a bad artist for all you know, but you have to accept that I am an artist. That doesn't mean anything more than the fact that what I produce is art. It's an expression. Mm -hmm. It's a creation. Yeah, it's an allowance of expression. Exactly. I mean, I freaking commend all of us, all us Filipinos that are sort of breaking that norm because it takes real courage and risk to follow that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And to continue to do it. Yeah, it's funny because I never really ever thought of myself as someone who was courageous. I just thought of myself as someone who did what he had to do because it's all he could do, right? I mean, I guess there's courage in that, right? Because it's scary. I love the description of bravery. Bravery isn't not being afraid. Bravery is doing the thing even though you are afraid. And when people ask me, are you afraid? And if you are, then why do you do what you do? And I'm like, suck at everything else. Like, I really do. Like, if you live with me, you'd know. Like, like, I can only make movies and music, you know, I, everything else. Like, I can't do taxes. I'm not a math Asian. Like, I can't do that. I can't do all the things that people think I should do, you know? I can only do what I do. Yeah, I cannot be a nurse. I, like, faint at the sight of blood. That's, like, real. I have a family member, won't say who, and I have enough cousins where this could mean anything. I, I literally have, like, 40 cousins, right? 
I had this one cousin who is a nurse and she can't take the side of blood, but she took it because it was the path of least resistance. My whole family is either in politics or medicine. She chose medicine. She has to fight fainting all the time. She has to be sitting down when she takes someone's blood. Yeah, I literally like will faint. Yeah. <laughs> can't do it. I get that. I get that. But speaking of, and I know growing up such a young age at six and then evolving to Como the Musical, there's a lot of experimenting and learning your craft, figuring out your voice. In that time period, were there actually Filipinos or Filipino-American artists that you look up to or influenced your work? No, no. There were people who were supposed to be Filipino, like my, my family grew up watching Back to Batan with Anthony Quinn playing a Filipino dude. I'm like, I guess he's Filipino. And there were like Filipino nationals who I looked up to, you know, because I grew up watching a lot of Filipino movies with my family. So, of course, like Chiquito and Dolphy were huge for me, right? They were creators, but they weren't just comedians. They were creators, right? I'll never forget the time I got to meet Dolphy. I was so starstruck. He was at St. Francis Boulevard. He was like in this Filipino restaurant when I was living in Daly City. And my mom was like, you can talk to him. So I asked him, you know, if he could explain one scene from one of his movies. And he was more than happy to explain the making of it to me. And I was like eight or nine. But Filipino-Americans, no, not really, because we didn't really have too many. I think there are some who were existing and were about my age, but I didn't look at them as people to look up to because I just kind of, I don't know, when you're a kid, you're not looking at other people your own age. There were lots of other Filipino-Americans on screen, but they didn't print as Filipino. Like, I would love to say Ernie Reyes Jr., you know, because, of course, I love Ernie Reyes Jr., but he didn't print as Filipino-American. No offense to Ernie Reyes Jr., but that was the time, right? Phoebe Cates also, like, you can't really say, like, you know, oh, there's there's a prominent Filipino-American because she didn't print as Filipino-American. She was just the woman from Fast Times at Ridge on High. So for me, if I could be completely honest, and I get to be cheesy about this, the person who really pushed me the most as far as, like, you know, a Filipino-American influence is my brother, my oldest brother, Jonas, who I pay tribute to at Bitter Melon also. He was the oldest of three boys who moved here from the Philippines and was trying to figure his life out and trying to figure out exactly how he fits in. And I saw how he would do it. When you have siblings, you can see how they're trying to change themselves to fit in with their surroundings. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at that and they're like, look at that person being fake. You're obviously not being real. You're trying to be American. But I didn't see it that way. I saw it as, oh, so he's trying to find out just like I am. And he opened my eyes to a lot of things like growing up. He just had this thing. He had this thing where he knew that we were growing up in such a toxic household that was full of violence and drugs and just criminal activity. And he just wanted to get me away from all of that. So he would take me to things. He'd say, I want to show you what a THX theater is all about. I want you to experience what 70 millimeter projection. I want to introduce you to real anime. Like, I know you like Robotech, but I'm going to show you this movie that's going to be playing at the Roxy called Akira. And like, it's opening tomorrow and we're going. And he would take me to all these movies and he would just introduce me to all these concepts that he was learning. And the funny thing is now, whenever I go visit him in Philadelphia, I'm like, hey, do you remember when you taught me about this? You taught me about this video game. And you taught me about these graphics. He forgot them all because he was never really that interested. He would just like look for anything and be like, well, maybe he'll be into this. And it's so funny because I thought that was who he was. And for the longest time, Jonas was the image of the Filipino man that I thought I had to be. And to some extent, I still do. Like, I go and see him, and I'm just like, you're totally like the father figure, you know? You introduced me to all these things. It's hilarious that you had no interest in any of this stuff, but, you know, get to at least, like, watch my movies and see what's become of that. Yeah, that's similar to my uncle. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what was his deal? He was a civil rights student activist, you know, at SF State, and 
he was always supporting all the cousins in their art, no matter what it was. He would encourage them. You want to be a singer? Here. Here's a microphone and karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You want to do movies? You want to act? Here's my VHS camcorder. Create a whole TV station. That's and, so great. And me and my cousins would just do that all summer long. There's always that one, isn't there, in the family that mm-hmm. you kind of seek out? Yeah. Not that you don't like the rest of the people in your family, but I'll maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. I have a really big family, of course. I think um, I'll fill yeah, up. Right. <laughs> my, yeah, my mom has 12 brothers and sisters, and they each have like three or four kids. Yep. And I think some of them have like three or four kids, too. But um, growing up, I feel like I was always happy to attend all the really big family events, and they were always really big. They were every Saturday. Like, if we lived in one of those houses where, like, you know, my mom's brothers and sisters lived in the same house, and her parents lived in the house, and then all the kids lived there, too. And I loved all of that. But there was always that moment when you found out a certain relative was coming who supports your artistic endeavors, and that just changes everything. You know, and suddenly you want to be able to talk about these things, you know? For example, like, I'll, I'll never forget being, like, internally homophobic and being like, yeah, I don't watch The Little Mermaid. Why would I ever watch The Little Mermaid? Then my one uncle, who was really into musicals and into song structure he was a musician he showed up and he was talking about little shop of horrors and i was like that's by the same guy who wrote the little mermaid and i just kind of like spewed all my geekery out and i remember i was just talking about this and i'll never forget like one of my cousins who would come with me he was like you watch little mermaid that's gay and my uncle was just like oh really am i gay too like i'm really into that movie because it's a good movie let's talk over here and he would pull me away and i remember there was that moment where i was like he makes me feel grown up we all have that relative who, like, you know, pushes us or supports us. I want to be that for people, you know? Yeah. And shows us the light <laughs> in mm-hmm. the tunnel, in the dark tunnel. Be a nurse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, no shade to all of the people in the no, middle. We need they're that. they're freaking superheroes. Yeah, yeah. Especially during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We also get to support Filipinos who don't want to take the traditional route. Right. And I think that's where... A generation before us didn't have the capacity to do that. Right. And now our generation, and especially a generation after us, yeah, like my son's generation, they're going to be what TikTok stars and I know <laughs> YouTube creators. And- yeah. And Filipinos are blowing up too. I don't envy the new generation. I'm happy for them. Different. You know, I think a lot of times people say like, "Oh God," and you know, like we had it so much harder. I'm like, yeah, and that's how it should be. We're all doing work for everybody else. Exactly. We're opening doors. Yeah. And you've opened so many doors. I know I haven't even touched my question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to point out one more. Just, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes like following any form of Twitter can be toxic. Like, eh. You go into film Twitter, you go to Filipino Twitter, you go to Philam Twitter. And it's, there's all kinds of toxicity because it's Twitter. Okay. But one thing I thought was funny, there was a, a big moment where a lot of like Filipino Americans who were in the medical industry were like, Stop oppressing us. Stop making fun of us for being nurses and doctors. And I'm like, who's oppressing you? Like, you heard one Joe Koi joke, and suddenly you feel so oppressed. Like, I feel like you guys you guys are the norm. You guys, and you guys make way more money than we do. Oh, yeah. I feel like you guys are just saying, like, white lives matter right now. Like, I, like you guys don't get to say this. I Sorry. Will... <laughs> I will say this. All my in-laws who are nurses have, like, mansions. Right. <laughs> Right? I actually went to my cousin's house during a Jokoi special, and everyone in the family is laughing, right? And by the way, they're all nurses. And like my auntie was says, the mom, she's, she's just like, I know it's supposed to be funny, but that's not nice. You know, nursing is good. Don't make fun of the nurses. And every like one of my nurse cousins were like, oh, mom, 
Shut up. <laughs> Just enjoy the joke. <laughs> Tita. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, it was in a mansion in Antioch. Antioch. I have so many cousins and aunts that live in Antioch. Antioch. Yeah. Ooh, we have like so many pockets, like Antioch, Vallejo, Daly City. Union City, yeah. South City, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. All right. So I want to speak about this because I know we could talk on and on and on about you know, family and stereotyping and tradition. But I kind of want to switch gears because, you know, in your career, you beautifully captured a variety of aspects of Filipino American culture, heritage in your films, from Homa to Fruit Fly to Bitter Melon. And now this new project, The Secret Art of Human Flight, is something so different. So my question is, what was it like directing a story that one, wasn't Filipino-American focused, was with a larger budget, and also written by another screenwriter. Yeah, all of that hit me at once when they approached me. And the one thing I'm going to be completely forthcoming about is whenever people come up to me with an opportunity for anything, I'm always looking for an out. For multiple valid reasons. One, I am really busy. I don't know if I want to do the thing that you're presenting to me, because I'm busy right? Two, I'm also insecure. Like all of a sudden somebody came to me with a script and a budget that was unheard of to me, right? It's like that budget could have funded all the movies I've made together twice, you know? And three, I'm going to be directing Hollywood actors. I'd never done that before. I was like, what's this punk Filipino boy going to do like with a bunch of Hollywood actors? And it was the lead actor who came to me. You know, Grant Rosenmeyer came to me and I was like, hey, you're the guy from Royal Tenenbaums, and you were, uh, you had your own sitcom on Fox for a while. You were Oliver Bean. Why me? And he was like, well, I saw I Am a Ghost, and I saw Colma when I was a kid, and right away I felt old. <laughs> but I was looking for my outs, I'll be honest. I was like, well, you know, maybe I should stick to what I know, right? And on top of that, you know, I just lost three friends in a row. This was smack dab in the middle of the pandemic, and here's this movie about grief and loss. It's a comedy. Didn't know if I was ready for that. And... The more I kind of meditated on it, it took actually, it took me throwing the funeral for my dear friend for me to kind of work that out of my system and then come back to Grant and say like, you know what, okay, I'll do it. Because I think what I thought to myself was, I have to shake things up a little bit. And when am I going to take that next step? And I was allowed to, you know, do my director's pass, right? Which is, you know, you get to rewrite some of the script. You know, I get to insert some of myself into the script and put my stamp on it. And I think the interesting thing for me was that directing someone else's script ended up being liberating. I'm not saying I prefer it. I'm not saying I don't prefer it. I'm just saying it was liberating because when I'm directing a movie like Bitter Melon or Fruit Fly, there's already the anxiety of, well, you know, this is a low-budget film. We don't have enough time to get all the takes that I want or it's already lighted the exact way that I want. Here's hoping that I'm doing a good enough job. And then you finally get the shot. And my whole thing is you direct and you direct until it feels like a movie. So I do, and I say, okay, we've got it. And then I stop, and I finish patting myself on the back, and I'm like, is it well-written? You know, because then there's this double anxiety, because there's this moment where I'm like, did I just wrangle a bunch of my friends into just doing whatever I want, and now they're getting paid by me, so of course they're like, yes, whatever, sir. Did I just buy their love? I don't believe they did, but like, you know, you fall into that moment sometimes where you're just like, well, I hope people like this. I hope people aren't just humoring me. The difference now is now, this isn't me as some punk brown kid saying, hey, let's put on the show right here. 
Now I'm one of the choices made by somebody else. Grant Rosenmeyer was assembling a team. He was looking for a director. He was looking for producers. And once I jumped on, he then trusted me to find a cinematographer and find all my people after that. So what happens there is you're working under the assumption that the script is good. Everybody is, you know, because Jesse Orenshine's script just kind of existed as a piece of literature that we had to adapt as opposed to me kind of like walking around as the sole creator and saying, okay, so let's talk about costumes. Let's talk about this scene right now. And for all I know, the actors are like, yeah, I will rehearse these lines that I hate. Again, not that they are saying that, but like that's the anxiety that I would have. And that's the liberation I felt doing someone else's script. Yeah, it wasn't Filipino-American. Yeah, it wasn't queer. I would like to think that after the three screenings at Tribeca and winning that award over in Colorado, everyone said, sure, this doesn't have your normal themes, but it feels like one of your films. And it's really funny to hear that from like Clarissa De Los Reyes and like Diane Paragas. Everyone's like, this is totally an HP movie. It was really nice to hear other Filipino directors say that because they don't have to, right? They were like, this has like such a queer sensibility or like your use of waltz, that's so Filipino. By the way, so I composed all the music in this too and the song that Paul Racy sings. And yeah, it's not like I've left it behind. I feel like after this, now that I'm getting a little more buzz, you know, than I've had in the past, I'd like to take that attention and say, hey, Thank you for coming and checking out The Secret Art of Human Flight. Check out my next film. And I hope you'll appreciate this super gay, super brown film. You know? <laughs> and I feel like that's how we have to do it. Everyone's been doing that. You know, I've been learning that from lots of people. I learned that from Wayne Wang. You know, like I got to work with Wayne Wang over the years. There was something really interesting about me and Richard Wong, like, hobnobbing with the likes of Wayne Wang. Well, Rich Wong wasn't hobnobbing with Wayne Wang. He was working with him. He co-directed Princess of Nebraska with him. But then I, you know, I got to tertiarily get to know Wayne, and his one-for-me-one-for-you method is really interesting. Do you know about that? Uh-uh. Very similar to the Coen Brothers' one-for-me-one-for-you. You know how the Coen Brothers will do, like, one big blockbuster and then follow it up with a super artsy film? Uh-huh. And then do a blockbuster, super artsy. Wayne Wang, too. You know, he will do, like... His big, what was that? Oh, Made in Manhattan. Or like Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. He'll do big movies. But in between each one, there'll be like this super indie, artsy, ethnic film. Yeah. You know? And then he'll go back to directing white folk. You know? <laughs> and then and, and, and that he makes his money. Then he takes that and he, he then he directs another indie. Yeah. So he does one for me, one for you. And I've met other directors who do that. And I remember thinking to myself, I would love to be able to do that. If I could just have the chance to do the one for me, for one for you. And... What happened with The Secret Art for Human Flight is I didn't see it as my chance for the one for me, one for you. What I saw that as was, oh, this is my chance to do my flying film. I feel like every director wants to do a flying film, you know, of some kind. When I say flying film, it doesn't necessarily mean like literal flying. It's just like, you know, the film that feels like flight. And I saw it as such. That's when I realized, well, the truth is all the flying films I know, they're all like Spielberg films. Or they're all like big Hollywood films. Well, let's see what we can do with this budget to make that happen. And then I realized, especially after Tribeca, all my agents like tell me about all these other opportunities that I have now for these other films that they've passed the scripts to me for. I realized, oh, this is the one for them. Well, then you can be sure the next one's for me. You know, like whatever I'm working with now, yes, I want to do my Cupac musical. I want to go back to Daily City and make my Filipino horror film. I mean, I want to do that. Not that I wasn't ever going to do that. I was just hoping I could. But now I think with this, I think this kicks it off a little faster. Yeah, I mean, similar with Taika. Yeah, 
Right, exactly. And then he got an Oscar for it. I know. His little indie film. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Oh, you know what's really sweet? What I think is really sweet is uh, Paul Racy's in my film. And the reason he's in the film is because when the script came to me, I was reading that there was this guru character. And one of the executive producers and Grant, they're much younger than me. They were like, oh, we were thinking of blah, blah, blah for this role. Can't say who. And I was like, the older guru? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, you know, that person's my age. And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, wait, how, how old do you think I Like, wait, hold on. So you can just think I'm really old. And I said, I feel like we need someone with more gravitas, you know? Now, I didn't know what I meant. I just knew what I felt from reading it. I said, I know you guys see this as a wacky buddy film, but I kind of see this as a little bit of a home invasion film. There's some gravity to this. This is a film about grief and loss. And I'd love to massage this character to be a little more emotional. We need like a Paul Racy type because I'd just seen Sound of Metal. And he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And Grant was like, oh, yeah, he was nominated for the Oscar. I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, like imagine someone like that. And then all of a sudden I have a meeting set up with Paul Racy. And I was like, is this what it means to work with Hollywood people? Like like with a Grant Rosenmeyer? Is that what the Grant Rosenmeyers of the world do? You mention a name and he gets you a meeting with them. So I'm sitting there waiting and I'm texting Grant. I'm sweating. I'm texting Grant. I'm like, who are you? And he's like, I'm kidding. I'm not going to join you. I'm scared. Like you're the director. You talk to Paul Racy. And so Paul Racy shows up and I'm putting on my confident drag, right? Taking time out of your busy schedule. Congratulations on your Oscar nomination and on the win at the Independent Spirit Awards. And he was like, ah, he was waving his hands. He's like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's just cut the shit. I, you know, like, I, 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 we don't want to talk about me right now. I need you to know that I thought Bitter Melon was beautiful. Wow. And right away I was like, oh, this is going good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you know Filipinos. You watched a Filipino-American movie. You watched my Filipino-American film and he thought it was beautiful. He was telling me about all of his Filipino-American friends. He lived in the Philippines. And yeah, we just kind of, Hit it off from there. So fast forward to a few weeks ago at Tribeca. He shows up with his wife. His wife is his agent too. It was so sweet. Like I was there and I just, you know, I was kind of flustered because PR is like pushing us around to like talk to all these different outlets, which is great, right? I mean, that's just why you want, that's why you hire PR, right? Like you, it's hard to navigate without them. But before that starts, I'm in the eye of the storm. I'm like, okay, it's all going to start. And Liz and Paul Racy walk up to me and they were like, you know, the campaign for me for the Academy Awards was worth. We want a campaign again. And I was like, yeah, you know, that'd be amazing if we get a distributor who's willing to pay for that kind of campaign for you to get Best Supporting Actor, just like you got Best Supporting Actor for Sound of Metal, that'd be great. And he's like, no, no, we're talking you. Like, what? He's like, Best Original Song. That song is he loved that song. Thank you so much for giving me that song. And then, then they were getting kind of getting a little too big. They're like, "I had best director and best." And then I was like, "Let's focus on you," because <laughs> I mean, I think it's for me. It's like I would be very happy with the best original song, but like, you know how much it costs a campaign? You know, no, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like like I I those are numbers I don't even say. Probably millions. I mean, it could be less for best original song, but like, it's still a lot of money. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really funny, I used to work right down over there, at the Examiner. And a woman that I worked with who was over us, a writer, we were all writing for the paper. Her name was Jessica Yu, and she was nominated for an Oscar. This is in 1993 for a movie called Breathing Lessons. And I remember, like, all of us were watching, we were in the office and we were watching the Oscars. And she won. And she walked up on stage, and she looked beautiful. And the first thing out of her mouth was, you know there's something wrong with the industry when you're forced to wear a dress that costs more than your entire film. Wow. And we all started laughing, but I remember I was really young at the time. I was, like, 19. I was like, oh, God, is that, is that real? 
I was like, is that a thing? That's, oh, you can, I guess like if I ever go there, I can't go up with my sweats. <laughs> just this moment where I was like, oof, suddenly like numbers start falling into place. And it's like, oh, okay. So a campaign for that film probably cost a lot too, you know? So I'm really happy to hear that Paul Racy really thinks that I should get some kind of recognition for this, but I think he's the one who's going to be recognized for this film. Well, I haven't seen the film yet. Okay. So okay. I can't say. Good thing I didn't say anything. But don't say no. <laughs> no, 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 I know, I know. It's a possibility. Actually, it was really funny because then, like, they sent me this, like, nice little text after uh, there's this uh, great film festival that we all flew to right after Tribeca called the Uray Film Festival in Colorado. And uh, I was shooting the awards ceremony because I made friends with all the filmmakers and I wanted to, like, shoot everything. And then they announced Best Director and it was me. And it was funny because then the woman who had just won Best Editing, or no, she won Best Cinematography. Anyway, she was behind me the whole time and I was like, wait, what do I do? And she like grabbed the camera out of my hands and she pushed me on stage <laughs> to, uh, to get my award. And what was funny is I think like right after that, right after I got the award, I got this text from Paul. He was like, see? Validation. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or foreshadowing. Oh, look at, look at your narrative <laughs> mind at work here. You got you write the prologue to this movie. <laughs> and we're manifesting it, right? right? <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Please help me manifest like, I don't know, rent money. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, I think anything is possible, especially with, look at the previous Academy Award winners, Barry Jenkins. He was local. Man, I was sobbing. Oh, my God. I would have been sobbing harder if it weren't for that weird gaffe with, like, oh, yeah. La La Land. Yeah. But, man, it's, uh, ooh, I'm actually, like, choking up just a little bit just thinking about that night because, like, all I saw was, like, it was almost like, you know, when people talk about their life flashing before their eyes, it wasn't my life flashing before my eyes. It was just like everything between medicine for melancholy and then, and all these flashes of Barry, like, because we were both at SF Film. And I was just like, wow, one of us got up there, you know? And I messaged him about it, and he was just like, well, you know, I'm actually, I'm in Miami right now. So I'd like, I'm glad that you're holding local pride for me, but like, I feel like a little bit of an imposter. And that was the last time I heard from him because from that point on, of course, like he got like new representation and like, I'm sure we'll cross paths again, but suddenly he wasn't like the SF film boy with a Gmail account. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like now he's Barry Jenkins. Yeah, he's Barry Jenkins. Yeah. By the way, I'm not holding it against him. Like he should be protected, right? Yeah. But that was a point of pride. That was such a point of pride. Same. I remember he would come to my one woman shows um, and support. Uh, He supported everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He supported like random karaoke sessions. Like, I don't know. I mean, like, literally, like, he would be the one, like, oh, what are you singing? And he would, like, take down, you know, like, the songs. And everyone's like, he's really down to earth. You can actually praise him. <laughs> and I remember I, I finally, like, started talking to him. I was like, well, he actually is really down to earth, you know? And I think from that point on, I was like, not to say, like, well, maybe that'll be me up there. But I'll be honest, my thing was like, well, maybe I'll make a medicine for melancholy one day, you know? And I think for me, what I was reacting to was Criterion putting it on their channel. And so, frankly, uh, this is not a hot take. This is a common conversation amongst POCs in the film. It's just like, um, for the longest time, it's like, when are you going to start putting black people on Criterion? Talk about all these classics. But, oh, okay, you have one. And then, you know, they actually, I think over the past 10 years, they slowly started introducing people of color into the canon. And when Medicine for Melancholy started streaming on the channel, I was like, and not only are they actually actively recognizing people of color behind the camera, but they're doing it with the Bay Area, and they're doing it with folks from over here. And then Coma was streaming on Criterion. And I was like, I remember I woke up to this text from Rich Wong. He was like, hey, how would you feel if we streamed on Criterion? I'm like, 
is that a question? Like, what? Like, that would be great. He's like, good, because we're going to in April. I was like, nice. And then, of course, when we started streaming, like, I, like, you know, I'm scrolling, and like, and there's medicine for melancholy. But then there's that picture of me with my arms outstretched on the hill, and I was like, crazy. Look at that, 2006. That's that's nuts. So yeah, I do feel like maybe now I have like a little more, I will a little more confidence. I will always have imposter syndrome. Nicole. I think we all do. I, but I also think that I only gravitate toward people who have imposter syndrome. You know, you ever met a filmmaker who doesn't? Yes, I've worked on sets with folks. You I, know, and I mostly those are like entitled white people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and say this. I feel like the few directors that I've met slash worked with who have no imposter syndrome, they don't make good movies. No, like the Michael Bay's. Oh, I've never worked with the Michael Bay, but, you know, and for all I know, maybe he does have imposter syndrome. Maybe he goes and cries on his expensive pillow at night. But like, if I'm talking about like, even like people like on our level, right? Like people who are doing the independent film. Yeah. I've met a few who don't have imposter syndrome. Really? And I'm like, huh, that sucks. (laughs) I'm probably never going to hang out with you. You know? We talk about that a lot on our podcast. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. And actually, since we're on the topic... How do you get over it <laughs> or you just work through it? Only way out is through, <laughs> right? Like I feel like that's my go-to answer for everything. <laughs> Bad meals, only way out is through. I mean, all joking aside, I feel like everyone should embrace it. Somebody was asking about how I managed to be prolific. And I said, well, I don't feel like I'm as prolific as you think I am because I see you checking your notes right now on your phone and I see that you're on IMDb. And I see that you're on my Wikipedia page. And I'm sure if you go by what's curated there, it looks like I'm doing a lot of shit. And what you don't see is all the failures in between. You think I didn't try to make five other movies after Fruit Fly? You know, I'm a ghost happened a long time after Fruit Fly by film standards, right? Like we shot Fruit Fly in 2009, didn't start making I'm a ghost till 2011 and didn't get distribution for that till 2014. You know, that's just the way things go. And I remember kicking myself for a while, thinking like, oh, most other filmmakers get distribution after a year of film festivals. But I Am a Ghost was special. We kept getting into film festivals. So I, I shouldn't have been kicking myself for it. I was like, look, people still want it. But I still saw it as me as a race, right? And it's funny how I kept at this race between 2006 and now. And I think about the times that I was falling behind, quote unquote, falling behind. And I don't even know who I might have been comparing myself to. Maybe it was just some fictional version of me I was comparing myself against like, you know, like the ghost trials in Mario Kart, right? Like, I'm, like, looking at some version of myself who's doing better than me, and I'm thinking, like, I'm not there. And then here's some guy from KQED talk calling me prolific. And I'm like, you're looking at a curated version of me, you know? If you knew the number of failures that happened in between, I don't know if you'd be using the word prolific, because my career is nothing more than a curation of all of my successes in a row. And I think now I'm at a point where I am kind of getting over my imposter syndrome because that just comes with age, I think. It's like now at this point, it's like I look at my canon. I haven't been doing anything else for 20 years. So, I mean, what else can I call myself? I actually am a filmmaker. And he asked me about my music career. He said, well, you you started off with musicals. Like, were you classically trained, blah, blah, blah. I said, here's the thing. Even when I got into music, I don't think I was comfortable calling myself musician. What I was doing was I was doing an impersonation of musicians. My very first album after I broke off from the band was I kind of made parody versions of a lot of different pop songs. Like, this is the girl band song. This is the boy band song. This is like the emo song. And so it was all ironic. So that way, if anyone hated it, I'd say, yeah, I know. Doesn't that suck? 
And so I can just shit on myself like I do. Like I'm really good at shitting myself. But I told this guy, I said, but you know, people started liking my music and I started making musicals. I said, well, I'll just keep on pretending. I'll keep on pretending that I'm a musician and people might actually believe it's good. After almost 20 years, it's like, well, I'm still doing it. And people are now asking me what, to compose songs. Like Folk, I don't know if you know about that album Folk. Like I was tasked to write 18 songs from 18 different people. And I was like, wow, people actually want my music. And I told him, I said, you know, it's kind of like how when in order to be asleep, you first have to pretend to be asleep, you know? You pretend long enough and you eventually will be that thing. And I think like for a while I was like, am I pretending anymore? Like I actually am an artist. Like I get to say this. I get to say this out there. So I think maybe that's one way of getting over imposter syndrome. I don't claim to have the answer, but what worked for me is just doing it until you feel like you're not an imposter anymore. Showing up. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about this film because I feel like it's not just a film. It's an experience. Attack Decay release. Yeah, I, thank you for saying that. I hope that people think that, yeah. And it was on three screens. One of the viewings was at Exploratorium. And I wanted to ask, what did you want audiences to take away from that? You know, I watch it now and I'm like, damn, I made that? That's nuts. Like, I was rehearsing with my band because we were live scoring it at the Exploratorium. And oh man, all kinds of imposter syndrome was coming out. I was like, oh, I'll just be in the corner over here controlling all the visuals and I'm going to play the keys and sing the backup. And then finally, like, Dan and Seng were like, you should be in the center. This is yours. You wrote this. You directed this. You composed all the music. You're performing all the songs. We're, we're performing with you. You should be in the center. It's weird for you to be in the corner in the dark. And I was like, okay, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. And while I was directing them during rehearsal time, I'd be watching the movie on these huge screens that they built. They built three separate screens at the Exploratorium, and they were wearing their astronaut outfits wherein he was drumming, Dan was drumming, and Singh was on bass. And I'm singing from the audience so I can see how it looks. Because also, I don't know if you remember what I was doing, I was also making animations that happen on the drums and on Singh's guitar and on their bodies. And when Anna Ishida or Carolyn would walk on stage with their white dresses, I would put animations on their bodies too. So I had to do a lot of stuff from the audience. And I'm watching what I'd made, and I was like, I just made a queer-ass sci-fi musical. And that's me floating around in space right there. And, like, look, there's, like, actual effects. There's, like, rockets. And, like, this is, like, retro-futurist whatever. And I was like, I made that? Because the process of making it was so intensely fast, furious, and fun. Because it was an art commission by the Svein Foundation, which was headed by Miguel Svein, CEO of Zendesk. And he pivoted to the arts. And he commissioned 100 artists in the Bay Area to reinterpret Noah's Ark. And I took that money and I was like, I have how much time? Uh, and I found out that I was like, I, I, everybody else were like, there were like these luminaries who were hired. And I was like, I had major imposter syndrome. I'm like, oh man, all these graphic artists and these sculptors and these performance artists are all going to be doing their pieces. I better show up and show out. So I went to town. I took all of that money, took all of that money and I made it a three-act film. It's kind of basing it on like 2001, you know? And I think at that point I was like, it, it's going to be that. I hired like outside help for the special effects. I was like talking with the animators in Eastern Europe, a lot of them who helped with that section, you know, that, that section that's all about like, you know, the earth that died, you know? And me and Mark, you know, like working out our issues in that space station. So there's that aspect of like, wow, I did that, right? And then there's the found footage aspect of it too, which is like all the historical footage of just showing like the dawn, the advent of humanity, right? Like 
the rise of agriculture to the industrial revolution to fascism to slavery to oppression to everything that leads to right, right now, right? And a lot of that footage you see of all the protests, of all the Black Lives Matter rallies, those are mine. Like anything that's all like protest oriented, that's footage from my life, you know? And all the stuff in Tokyo, that was me. So literally, I was like, I'm just putting two, this story together. I have to reinterpret Noah's Ark. Like that's all I was thinking. And, then, and I remember if you were to ask me then, like, well, what do you want people to take away from it? I just say, Noah's Ark. Like I didn't know what to say because I was just rushing to make this movie. And years later, like I've been able to refine it, you know, and like, especially now that I get to do it, like in the space that I like, not that I didn't like the other spaces, but now it's like, you know, because the, the Hayes Valley one was really cold. People didn't want to stay for the whole thing. And there were some people who were dropping acid during that film, which I was very happy for, right? Because the film is good for that. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, you know, this really should be like in a more party setting, whereas like not a party, like a concert setting. So... I really feel like this time around, I can really distill what I hope people take away from this. And that's just the idea that we all just experience something really traumatic. And let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're out of the woods yet. We're all going through it. So many of us are going through it in so many different ways, you know? By the way, that story I wrote in 2012, I wrote that story and that music about a pandemic destroying the world in 2012. So this is pre-COVID, right? So, like, now that I got to do it as a film, like, I couldn't even think about COVID. I was just thinking, even though a lot of that footage of the people with masks in Tokyo, that was mine, right? That was the beginning of the pandemic in Japan. I still didn't see it as such. And so, like, now, in retrospect, I realized, I'm like, no, I really wanted them to make a movie that just kind of reminded people that we're all in it together. And I know that sounds really simplistic, but I think that if you watch the film and you take in my themes, you take the history of humanity. You take the history of fascism. You take the history of industry, right? And then you tie that with this little queer love story in between between the unnamed people, orange astronaut and white astronaut, and the depression that orange astronaut feels after witnessing the weight of humanity and seeing the love that white astronaut tries to give and how we move from there. I think because I started positioning it as a movie that you can experience as opposed to a movie that you sit and watch, People started getting the themes. People were crying at the Exploratorium. Leah Ferrer, who's one of the heads of the Bay Area Flash Mob, she's like, I actually cried like five times. And I think she'd already seen it, you know? Because one thing I tell people too is, this is the one movie I made that you're allowed to talk during. It's all music, you know? And so it's interesting because at the Exploratorium, I was on stage performing all the music live and I was watching all these people dancing. And I don't know, I, I don't mind getting spoilery about this, but there's that one moment where we have made our way off of Earth because the Phoenix virus has decimated us. And the song that I wrote for that, when we see all of us humans colonizing all these other planets, is called We Are a Phoenix because we've risen from the ashes, but also it's called the Phoenix virus. So it's me kind of implying that we're kind of a virus, kind of infecting the, the universe. Yeah, it could be seen as cynical, but it could also be seen as like, oh, maybe there, there's an optimism to that. And I think for me, all I want people to take away from this is a chance to talk. You know, a chance to talk about what that might mean, colonize, what that might mean to maybe be an infectious virus in this universe, right? Let's not be fools. Like, we love painting good guys and bad guys, you know? One of my favorite quotes from Bojack Horseman is like, there are no good people or bad people. Sometimes we do good things, sometimes we do bad things. And I wanted to paint this picture of us as humans, just all humans. It's like, we are all doing horrible things to the planet and we all need to do better things for ourselves. So what I love about this last screening, and I'm hoping to replicate in New York again on July 29th, is a chance for people to just kind of talk about where we're heading. Are you going to do it again here? 
I hope so. And people want to. Every other institution who says they want to do this, you have a lot to live up to because the Exploratorium kind of did the perfect screening. Yeah. You know? There's a reason why we called it the complete Attack the K release. Like, it had all the songs. Like, there was no time constraint. Like, this wasn't like a quote-unquote museum cut. Like, you know how Independent Lens asks filmmakers to make their films 59 minutes? Sure. Like, this was the full 80 minutes, wow. you know? And I would love to do it again. The question is where and when. Well, the Westfield Mall's going to be empty. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I actually considered contacting you guys for oh. a potential screening. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask this question because, you know, a lot has changed since we started out in this thing called art. You know, there's a lot more resources and attention given to Asian American creatives. You see shows like Beef, movies like Joyride, and even Fire Island coming out on streaming services and in theaters. So I'm curious as to what stories you feel are still missing from this Asian American discourse and stories that you actually want to continue to represent on screen. I'm hesitant to say what I think is missing from Asian American discourse because I'm not going to lie and say that I've seen it all. I feel like I've seen like a lot of things that have been surfaced for me, right? That's even me like attending Asian American film festivals, right? There are also things aside from that. Like there are lots of important artists out there doing work that don't even make it to the festivals. Maybe they're doing what I think is missing, right? But if I were to talk about what I see and what I would like to see more of is a chance at real equity or real equality. And, cause then, and I'm, I'm going to cut myself off now so I can explain right away before people bristle and like cancel me for saying that. If you really want equality for me, you have to be okay with me writing mediocre characters. I deserve to be mediocre, you know? And I've been, this is something I've been like butting up against since Colma. I remember the Philippine news like trashed Colma, saying like, how dare Mendoza write these characters with no aspirations? All they do is just sit around and get stoned all day and they have fake IDs and they're teenagers drinking. And I'm thinking like, you know what? Asian excellence is, is an oppressive force too. Like, why do we all have to be so damn excellent? You know, that that's not my life. And I've always wanted the freedom to make a slacker character. I always wanted the freedom to make a bad character, a lead character who was not likable. White people have been doing it for a long time, and some of my favorite movies, like Sideways, those two leads are really unlikable. But if once somebody makes an Asian version of that, and someone did, I'm not going to say too much about this, someone did, and I championed them for it, and the Asian American community came down hard on them. And I was like, but people get to make unlikable characters too. Like Kevin Smith. Yeah. <laughs> like all of his movies. Right, yeah. Or even just an anti-hero, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to see more of that. And the reason why I hesitate to say that doesn't exist is because now we have movies like Joyride, uh, right? Like, talk about shattering stereotypes, yeah. right? Like, if you think Raunchy. about, like, the Asian-American women of yesteryear and you think about the women in Joyride, and it's like, don't you think that's a step in the right direction? Mm -hmm. You know? So with that, it's like, as much as I enjoyed Joyride, I realized that there's also an element of excellence to that, too, right? And I said this, actually, when I was sitting next to Adrian Tomine on the panel at Tribeca, which, by the way, I was like... I was so starstruck because I had to lean over and tell him, I was like, your graphic novel saved my marriage in 2006. Wow. <laughs> and I could feel like a slight defensiveness coming from him like during the first moments of the panel too. And I do not blame him because he wrote some pretty controversial stuff back in the day. You know, he wasn't about the Asian excellence. He was writing like regular people. 
And people came down on him for it. And people were attacking his Asian-ness, which I remember just thinking was so unfair. I thought that was so unfair because I was like, no non-Asian would write this. This is part of the Asian experience too. Just because it's not yours doesn't mean it's not valid, right? And so I remember like for the first few questions that he had to answer, he was sitting to my right and I remember I, just, I could feel like the prickliness. I could tell that people, he was expecting people to like come down on him again, but I was like, in almost 20 years, your film just got adapted into a feature film by Randall Park, a screening in the week here at Tribeca. No one's here to attack you, you know? But I felt it though. I get it, right? Like I feel like there's this need to always have like the best version of yourself out there. I did this piece over at the Asian Art Museum that's called Both Eyes Open, and I had to interview interracial couples. And one of the pieces was uh, an Asian woman and a white guy who are both colleagues of mine. And she has this thing. She was like, I'm sorry, I grew up just always making sure that I was the best version of myself because my mom always told me to be careful because white people are watching. That's real. That's I get it. That's so real. I get it. But also, just because white people are watching doesn't mean that I can't put out the real version. <laughs> you know, I'll be completely honest. There are aspects of myself that I'm very proud of, but are so heterodoxical to what people think an Asian should be. And I'm not ready to make a movie about those things just yet. And I feel like every Asian artist has that thing like I do. Like, I'm not even saying it here in the microphone because these are things that, like, I know I could say amongst friends. But once I say I want to make a movie about it, people like the Philippine News are going to be all over me for, like, wanting to make stoner characters or drugs. Like, I'm slowly getting there. I'm slowly getting there, you know? I think I even started a little bit with Secret Art of Human Flight, you know? There's a little bit of me in there, and I'm not going to say too much about what it is. I'm starting to dip my toe into the water about just kind of like letting on to like some of my other identities. I feel that so much. Yeah. My pilot was about panais and cannabis, and no one wanted to touch it. Fine, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I do a lot of drugs, all right? <laughs> and so like I was able to put my psychedelic experience into like like they do. There's a mushroom trip in the scene, and I actually guided a lot of mushroom trips for people who were involved with the film. Even I did a piece for Salon recently, and I was talking about that, and he was in, he's a lovely guy. I've known this journalist for a very long time. He's like, I'm probably not going to use that part. I want to make sure you look good. I was like, why does it look bad if I say that I use psychedelics, you know? It's legal here yeah, in the Bay Area. Yeah, I know, and I said that, too. I was like, I was like, I literally joined a church just so I can get some, and he was like, yeah, but this is a national publication, and he's, and he's not Asian either, right? So this is just him being nice. But there's a part of me that kind of feels like it's kind of a big part of my identity. Like, I want to be able to talk about this and I want to make a movie about it. So by having, like, my take on that mushroom scene in The Secret Art of Human Fly was kind of like me dipping my toe in the water. Here's the thing, too. Steve Jobs, how do you think Apple and Pixar was formed? He was high on shrooms and acid when he thought of both of those companies. If you read his bio yeah that's all he like talks about is doing yeah. a bunch of drugs it's kind of the reason why i kind of bristle whenever someone sees something super creative and they're like whoa i want whatever that dude's smoking and it's just like you're half praising them but there's also a lot of judgment in that mm -hmm. too right i'm yeah. just kind of like if you only knew yeah if you only knew how much better of a person you'd be if you did what i do <laughs> i will say i'm bad at microdosing every time i've tried to microdose i've done too much i'm like oh that was just a dose but I feel like it's the only drug I've done in which I learn something and I take it into the real world, you know? Like, it's not like ketamine where it's like you experience this euphoria and then it's over, right? One of the things that I love about doing mushrooms is, is being uncomfortable, you know? Like doing a, what's called a heroic dose. And that's like 10 to 11 grams and like basically just like doing that and going for hours and just like being confronted with all these like really uncomfortable notions and concepts. 
And then I walk away with things. To this day, there are things that I'm like, oh, that's why I do this. And that's this is what I'm trying to do with this piece of media. And it works itself into my output. And I'm really proud of the fact that like at the few screenings we've had for Secret Art of Human Flight, there was always at least one person, and often two or three, but at least one person who will walk up and say like, that's probably the most accurate like mushroom trip I've ever seen on film. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Love that. So what are you currently geeking over? Oh man, what am I geeking over? What a segue. This is great, actually. I'm just gonna, I, I have many things I'm geeking over, but I'm gonna go ahead and admit this. I have a Google note that I'm constantly adding to called things I obsess over because I discovered them on mushrooms. Because I feel like there are lots of media that I've discovered on mushrooms that I, I can't be objective about. Like they're just the best things I've ever heard or seen. And one of them is an Adventure Time episode called James Baxter, The Horse. And I remember seeing that on Mushrooms. I was like, this is like the best three hours I've ever spent. And Mark's like, it's an 11-minute episode. I know what you're talking about. And some of them are songs. This is just the truth. This is something I've been geeking out over, like really obsessively over the past week. Because I just did a heroic dose last Sunday. And I was one of those people, and this is so typical. I only subscribed and really appreciated and praised the first three albums of Bell and Sebastian because I was like, oh, that's the real Bell and Sebastian. After everything after that's overproduced pap, right? And I had the psilocybin playlist for tripping and it was over and Spotify was doing its thing. It's like, oh, you, me, like this. And it picked a song from one of the later Bell and Sebastian songs. And like, I was on the floor of my apartment and I, was just, and I just heard this song just kind of like echoing over me. I was like, what is this beautiful song? And it was, I want the world to stop from Right About Love, which is their 2010 album, which is smack dab in the middle of this era that I considered was like the bad era, right? And then at that point I was like, oh, and I just went to that and I, I hit like the repeat. You know, when you're tripping, it's like, you can listen to a song over and over. So I think I played it like nine times in a row. Once I sobered up, I was like, how do I feel about this song? How do I feel? I was like, I don't know. It's just amazing. It's, I love it. So like, I literally started performing it everywhere for the, over the past, I did a, you know how I do those split screen videos? Yes. I did one of those and I sent it to all my friends. I was like, yeah, do you guys know this song? Like you guys, like we shit on this album so much, but this is a beautiful song. And like, it was like, it's all right. I'm like, it's great. This is a beautiful song. So like, it's funny. Cause I, I started revisiting like the stuff in my list from over the years. Cause I was thinking, it's like, oof, maybe as it wears out, maybe I'll have a different perspective. But I went back and I was looking at some of this stuff. I saw like Feels Good by Ty Siegel was in there. Mm. Oh, I had, I had the live version of You Got Me by The Roots uh, featuring Jill Scott instead of Erica Badu on there. Oh, wow. And nice. I had like Imitation of Life by R.E.M. I was like, nope, still love all of them. Yeah. So I'm kind of geeking out over like this playlist that I'm making now. Like some of it is like episodes of shows and some of them are movies. But I kind of have this thing where I just kind of want to revisit everything I've fallen in love with while I was on Mushrooms. Mm. I love that. Really do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, HP, of course. for coming all the way here. No, it's so far. All the way here? I live like right over there. I know. <laughs> but no, seriously, you're our second guest here at Belay Creative. Second? Yeah, second. A uh, human was the first. What yeah. were the other episodes done? <laughs> Just remotely. Oh, okay. Okay. So this is very special. Oh, and nice. I feel no, thanks honored for me. Thanks that for you're me. here. I always feel honored to be here. But it's also, you know, I'm just such a local boy that like, Whenever I come here, I just, I have that thing where it's like once someone starts giving me attention, I assume that the people who are like, wow, you're the guy that did blah, 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 that 
for every one of those people, there are three other people on this side saying, the fuck is he? Why does he deserve all this fucking attention? You know, like, like we're just trying to do our thing here, you know? And, and so I never want to be that guy. So I was wife just like, I walk in, I'm saying, oh yeah, I'm just going to, you know, visit my friend and then leave, you know? Well, when you are nominated for best director in the Oscars, I'm going to be like, HP is so humble. Because <laughs> <laughs> you really are. And you are a freaking joy to be with and be thank in you. space with. So thank you so much for thank coming. Thank you for having me. As an emerging filmmaker, I like to look at artists like HP that embrace the art of collaboration, connection, and the power of BIPOC storytelling. In this episode, he offered a really candid examination of the pressures that we as Asian Americans experience in being measured up still to this model minority myth. The standard in our households, careers, and even in media and if we continue to fight for representation in media, he makes a really great point that not all representation need to be quote unquote good or wealthy like crazy rich Asians. And as we craft and share our stories, we get to embrace the diversity of the Phil M experience. Also, what I appreciate most about our conversation was HP's openness and his ability to keep that childlike wonder, magic, and creativity in all of his projects. I remember as a kid doing something similar with my cousins, except I was writing, reenacting, and filming SNL sketches, soap operas, and late night TV interviews, all with the support of my Uncle Pat and his VHS video camera. It's amazing when we have the opportunity to, as children, we really do gravitate towards the thing that drives us and our passion for creating. Today, I'm proud to call myself an artist, a writer, an actor, and even filmmaker. And looking back at my 20-year-long career, I can finally say, I'm not pretending anymore. You can find HP on Instagram at HP Mendoza and catch his latest film, The Secret Art of Human Flight, on the film festival circuit. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Saliver. You can follow me at Kindred Kafwa on Instagram. The podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Belay Creative. It is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at belaycreative.org. Creative with a cake.